You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 26th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. from London. This is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up in the next 60 minutes, the latest on the Israel-Hamas conflict, including heavy fighting around key hospitals in Han Yunis and reports of talks to bring about another ceasefire. Also ahead. We also recognise that Congress has a key role in reviewing arms sales, uh, but uh, I'm just not going to confirm or get ahead of proposed uh, defence sales or transfers until they are formally notified to Congress. The US is ready to start delivery of $20 billion worth of F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. We'll ask whether this is a sign that the world has become more transactional than ever. Plus the latest on Paris Haute Couture Week and Andrew Muller fills us in on the last seven days. But we learned that at least one holder of elected office had made an even more egregious misjudgment than assuming that what Donald Trump voters wanted was relative sanity and competence. And we ponder the future of champagne. That's ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in today's news. The first execution using nitrogen gas has been carried out in the US state of Alabama. The UK government has walked away from trade talks with Canada over the imposition of tariffs that Canada is introducing on some British exports, including cars and cheese. And a Copper Airlines jet has become the first Boeing 737 MAX 9 to return to service after 171 aircraft were grounded following an accident involving an Alaska Airlines plane. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the director of the CIA and his Israeli counterpart will meet Qatari officials for talks on a second potential Gaza hostage deal and a pause in fighting. William Burns will make the trip in the next few days. Meanwhile, in the latest reports from the Israel-Hamas war, at least 20 people have died and 150 injured in an attack on a queue of people lining up to receive humanitarian aid in Gaza City. Well, to get the latest on the and other stories coming out of the conflict. I'm delighted to say that Hannah McCarthy joins me on the line from Jerusalem. Uh, she's a journalist based there and a regular voice on Monocle Radio. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Um, so let's begin with this news. It's broken in the last couple of hours about the di- director of the CIA and his Israeli counterpart um, and the discussions with the Qatari officials. Can you, out, can you fill us in on any more detail we have? Sure. So the U.S. is trying to build up momentum for a second hostage deal. Uh, obviously, the last one ended in November. And since then, uh, there's been a sense that, you know, the, the Israeli government has not committed uh, to, you know, trying to get the hostages out. So the U.S. is keen uh, to put some pressure on getting a deal together. They've sent, you know, a serious figure from their administration, the CIA director, William Burns. Uh, he was involved in the last negotiation uh, hostage deal, and he actually made a visit right before that deal was confirmed in November. Uh, so again, I think they're trying to create, you know, conditions for a deal to be made. 
Uh, we're hearing, you know, lots of different kind of uh, information about what that deal will entail. Uh, so the idea is that, you know, all of the hostages will be released in two batches. First, you know, children, uh, elderly and civilians. And then secondly, uh, soldiers and, uh, you know, those who've already died in captivity will be removed, uh, will be uh, released and then what the ratio we're hearing uh, in terms of this release is that you know for every one hostage in Gaza that's released, a hundred Palestinian prisoners could be released. And the kind of length of uh, pause we're looking at at the moment is 60 days. This is obviously a, a point of contention between Hamas and Israel. Hamas are looking for a complete end to the war. They do. They want a commitment that Israel will you know withdraw from Gaza and will not restart their operations. Uh, Israel has rejected that. Uh, and the second sticking point is uh, whether uh, female Israeli soldiers will be included in the first batch of hostages released or the second batch. Israel is pushing for them to be included in the first batch. Hamas is pushing for them to be included in the second batch. These are two very different proposals, aren't they? A 60-day um, pause in the fighting is suggested by Israel. And as you say, Hamas wants a, a, a complete end to the war and international guarantees that it won't start again. Absolutely. And again, you know, we're seeing extremely heavy fighting in southern Gaza around Khan Yunus, uh, despite the fact that, you know, you know, the final stages of negotiations are supposedly underway. And I think, uh, you know, there, there are signs that Israel wants to put real pressure on Hamas to, you know, to agree to a deal that they, you know, might not want and to accept the shorter pause uh, because they are under so much pressure. But at the same time, we're already seeing, you know, in northern Gaza and central Gaza, resurgence of fighting from Hamas militants there. So it looks like, you know, while they're increasing pressure on southern Gaza, Hamas, you know, are also putting uh, Israeli forces under pressure in northern Gaza. Uh, so again, there's a lot of different, you know, uh, um, power plays going on and how those will feed into the negotiations over the next week or so remains to be seen. Now, the unconfirmed reports are that this meeting will happen in Europe. Um, Qatari officials will be uh, sort of driving the agenda, but there'll also be the, the CIA director and his Israeli counterpart, the head of Mossad. Um, is there any sense that the anyone from Hamas is going to be at these talks? No, I don't think there's any sense that uh, someone from Hamas will be traveling to Europe. Uh, Hamas are labeled a, a terrorist organization in Europe. I, I, I can't see that happening. But again, the Qataris obviously are, you know, the key interlocutor with Hamas. Uh, I'm sure they'll be in regular contact. You know, the Qataris are working extremely closely with both Hamas and Israel. You know, there's a rumor going around diplomatic circles, you know, in Israel that, you know, the Qataris have the best parking spot at the Mossad office in Tel Aviv. Um, so again, we're not expecting a Hamas rep to be at those European meetings. I think that would be, you know, a remarkable uh, development and not one we're necessarily expecting. Uh, but again, they will be intimately involved. Because Qatar has, a well, I, I should rather start by saying that um, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu seems to have quite a problematic relationship with Qatar, doesn't he? And there was uh, reports yesterday or the day before saying that um, he apparently described Qatar's mediation role in the context in the, in the conflict as problematic, um, saying he told the families of Israeli hostages held by Hamas that you don't hear me thanking Qatar; they have leverage because they finance ha Hamas. Um, it, it's it's really difficult, isn't it, to try to make progress when you have statements like that from your Israeli prime minister being made public? 
And, and it's not just that that statement was made public. What appears to have happened is that Netanyahu's office recorded a meeting he had with fam- uh, families of the hostages uh, and deliberately leaked this. But what I would say is the Qataris, you know, seem to have this understanding that Netanyahu has a domestic audience and he has an international audience. And I think they understand that there's things he's going to say to a domestic audience. Um, They take a long term view, I think, of their relationship with Israel. Uh, They're also, you know, they're, you know, they're not a democracy and they don't necessarily, you know, have, you know, voters at home who are outraged over this slight. You know, they have, you know, they understand that they can kind of, you know, take longer term decisions. And I think they also, based on the kind of rebuke they did give, which I was slightly surprised by, um, they kind of you know said, you know, we think Netanyahu is trying to save his career. So my sense is that, you know, they think Netanyahu, you know, won't last, you know, this year, that, you know, ultimately their eye is on the longer term relationship with Israel and they're not going to let it, you know, influence their actual, you know, relationship with Israel, which is actually an extremely close working relationship at the moment. Hannah, let's move on to another story which is expected to break later on today, which is an interim ruling from the ICC, the International Court of Justice, on South Africa's allegation that the war in Gaza amounts to genocide. Now, Israel turned up to the to the hearing um, and pleaded its case in the same way um, that uh, the South African government did the same. Um, any ruling on this is binding, isn't it? But strangely unenforceable. So how worried is Israel about this? I think they're definitely concerned about the reputational damage that this type of ruling could have, um, the kind of implications it can have for its standing in the international community. At the same time, you know, I think there are real kind of I think the the pressure that it puts on is more its partners, for example, America or the EU, and the fact that you know these countries say you know we respect the ICJ, we we have signed up to the Genocide Convention, and you know we're getting close to a situation where you know are these countries going to say they don't accept an ICJ ruling if they do, uh, for example, uh, issue a preliminary measure that Israel should uh, suspend military operations in Gaza? That's not seen as very likely, but. Other measures such as, you know, ordering Israel to effectively allow aid into Gaza, which it's clear that it's not currently doing, uh, could also um, put some pressure uh, on Israel. Um, but again, I think, you know, the interesting dynamic will be for the US. The US, again, has said it doesn't really think, you know, this case has merits, but it is signed up to the Genocide Convention. And Biden is, you know, losing support among his voters. 50% of the people that voted for Biden in the last election believe Israel is committing a genocide. Uh, that's the same figure for 18 to 30 year olds. So if the US wanted a, a kind of, you know, avenue to, I guess, you know, maybe pull back from their position of, you know, unconditional support to Israel, this could well be it. Hannah McCarthy in Jerusalem, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. at 9.11am in Ankara, 7.11am here in London. Now, part of this week's agreement by the Turkish parliament to approve Sweden's membership of NATO was the sale of $20 billion worth of F-16 fighter jets from the United States to Turkey. And it looks like the delivery will happen sooner rather than later. The US ambassador to Ankara has said publicly that Washington is ready to sign off the delivery as soon as is necessary. Well, I'm joined by Hannah Lucinda-Smith, who's Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, a very warm welcome back to Monocle Radio, Hannah. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, now, just could you explain the background to this deal? Because it's it's a complicated path to, to a simple transaction, isn't it? Yeah. 
there were a lot of things tied up with uh, what happened in the Turkish Parliament this week when finally it voted to ratify Sweden's membership. Now, Turkey, by which we mean Erdogan really, has been dithering over this for a really, really long time, more than a year. Um, and he's made various um, reasons why Turkey wouldn't ratify Sweden's NATO membership. He's talked about them uh, harbouring Kurdish terrorists. He's talked about them having to reform their own terrorism laws before they join the alliance in order to be uh, as a a kind of a good member, a proper member. Um, also, there were the Quran burnings in Sweden as well that happened last year. They really put a strain on the relationship and put things back even more. But as you mentioned, the key thing is the sale of F-16s uh, by the US uh, to Turkey. Now, clearly, this is separate from relations with Sweden, but it's very much wrapped up with Turkey's place in the NATO membership. And I think, you know, you couldn't really get much clearer than, uh, than Jeff Flake, the US ambassador's interview uh, yesterday, in which he said, yep, as soon as this is confirmed, as soon as we've got the document saying that Sweden's membership is ratified, we're ready to sign it off. I mean, it's, it's fairly clear that the kind of relations between the US and Turkey at this point are pretty transactional. Just explain to us what Turkey wants to do with these F-16s, why it believes it needs them so badly. Yeah, well, I mean, Turkey's foreign policy over the past decade has become a huge, hugely more muscular. You know, it's gone from a country which had a motto, peace at home, peace in the world, which pretty much stuck within its borders when it came to defence, to really getting involved in military operations in all its neighbourhood, in Syria, in Libya, uh, in the Caucasus, also selling weapons to Ukraine as well. Um, you know, Turkey does sit in the middle of a very, very, um, you know, chaotic neighbourhood and an unpredictable neighbourhood. Obviously, we've now got what's going on in uh, in Gaza in the Middle East as well. Um, but the reason why they weren't allowed these is because, you know, over the past 10 years in particular, the US and Turkey have really diverged on, you know, what they see as the kind of main targets within the Middle East. You know, there was a huge row caused by the fact that um, the US backed Kurdish forces in Syria, their forces that Turkey sees as a uh, banned terrorist group. Um, Turkey's carried out operations against those Kurdish forces in Syria, often bringing US uh, personnel into the line of fire as well. So that's been the reason why um, you, the sale has been held off. But clearly, you know, the the thing that's most important to the US at the moment in this region is Ukraine and obviously, you know, shoring up NATO. And I think you know, that's really uh, been proved by the fact that uh, Erdogan's been able to get the sale that he wanted in return for you know, basically doing the right thing. You know, it's it's not something that should, you know, bring rewards. Let's say he he has, as I said, did it over this for the best part of a year and really caused a lot of holdups within the NATO alliance. Does Erdogan believe that he is doing the right thing here, or is it is he doing what many see Turkey as doing, which is playing it both ways as much as possible? Yeah, I mean, he's been fairly open about the fact that he wants Turkey to be a kind of mediator country. He doesn't want it to be. You know, firmly allied to one side or the other. He wants Turkey to be able to play this kind of mediation role in places like Ukraine, which he has done with some success, also offering Turkey as a mediator, uh, mediator in Israel with less success. He hasn't managed to really get his foot in the door there. But I think, you know, that's the kind way of looking at it. The more sort of cynical, hired way of looking at it would be, you know, he knows how important Turkey is, particularly to the NATO alliance and particularly now. And for that reason, he knows that he can use that power in order to get what he wants domestically um, and also to get what he wants from the US.
Just to explain to us that, that longer term shift that you you mentioned a few moments ago about how things have become transactional and that the nature of geopolitics is changing. I mean, this in this case, it is literally join NATO, allow Sweden to join NATO, do the right thing. But in order to let you do it, we'll let you buy some planes. It seems, it seems rather brutal. It seems very stark, doesn't it? And and some might say it's a very cynical state that we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it's quite remarkable how just how starkly the US ambassador put it. I mean, we've always kind of known that the, these kind of conversations are going on in the background, but this is absolutely open. You know, this is, you know, you do this and we'll give you this. Um, you know, I think a lot of Western countries, mostly the US, have come to see Turkey as a, you know, a country that they have to deal with, um, but they don't particularly enjoy dealing with, and that's because of Erdogan. Um, you know, Turkey's had these really long, deep relations with West allies going back decades. You know, it joined NATO in 1952. Um, you know, really since the birth of the Turkish Republic 100 years ago, it's been a, a Western-looking nation, but Erdogan is not, uh, he, he's not what what you might call a good ally. He's not an easy ally, um, but he does need to carry on being an ally. And I think, you know, for that reason, particularly since Biden took uh, the presidency four years ago, they've really tried to keep Erdogan at arm's length a little bit. But when it came to Sweden's NATO membership, I think that was an issue that was just too important to let him, uh, you know, not allow that to go ahead. And finally, and briefly, if you wouldn't mind, speaking of uneasy allies, how much would things become even more transactional between Turkey and the US were Donald Trump to gain the white regain the white house this this november yeah i mean i think you know the the sort of peak of transactionalism in uh u.s turkey relations was that period from 2016 to 2020 when when trump was in the white house i mean trump and erdogan they're characters who recognize each other they operate in much the same way they understand each other and that four years was really turbulent for that reason um you know they they both enjoy kind of creating rows creating crises to get what they want um, you know, they're not scared of firing barbs at each other, but then in the next moment, you know, making up and also almost acting as friends. They're not scared at all of using family members to, to do politics. It was a very close relation between two son-in-laws of, of Trump and Erdogan. And I think, you know, the difference now is if Trump gets back into the White House this year, the world and particularly the neighborhood around Turkey is a far more dangerous place. We've got the Ukraine war now. We've got what's happening in, in Gaza. Syria is still rumbling on, even though it's not really talked about much. So I think this time around, that kind of, um, you know, instability and transactions in the White House could be really dangerous. Hannah Lucinda Smith, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. Still to come on The Globalist. Now, just in case you were worried, we're going to find out what's in store for champagne in 2024. Stay with us. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
Let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Phil Clark, Professor of International Poli- Politics. I should be able to say politics, shouldn't I, Phil? <laughs> so at University of London. It's, it's that kind God, of morning, Emma. Co- co- complete sympathy. Could you rescue me, please, Phil? Well, I, I, probably not, but I'll, you know, oh, I'll, 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 I'll talk, <laughs> talk the news anyway. So, but that, but, uh, that, I, that ship sailed. I can't, but maybe the International Court of Justice can, uh, because I guess uh, it wasn't this that is, bad. That's it's not 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 yet. It could escalate to that uh, that that place. But um, this, I guess, is one of the the big international stories all over the papers um, today. Which which is about the International Court of Justice uh, handing down uh, its interim ruling on the Israel-Gaza uh, situation. Um, undoubtedly, people have been uh, following the ICJ in a way that people typically don't follow the ICJ. Uh, South Africa has taken uh, Israel to the court over what it's doing in Gaza. It's accused uh, Israel of committing genocide. The ICJ won't rule on the genocide question today. That's probably going to take another year or so. But what the ICJ could rule today is that Israel uh, needs to call an immediate ceasefire uh, to cease the conflict and, and the harm that's being done uh, to the people of Gaza. Uh, that's the big question uh, in front of the court today, and that ruling will come down at about uh, 12 o'clock GMT. Now, as we heard uh, from our correspondent Hannah McCarthy in Jerusalem a, l- a little earlier today when we raised this issue, she just said, well, the likelihood of Israel causing an immediate ceasefire is very, very slight. Indeed. I, I think there are two things we're likely to see out of the ruling today. I think the court will take a a fairly gentle line on Israel. This is a very political court. It's always balancing law and politics. And and also there is an Israeli judge um, who's involved uh, in the case. So I think we're likely to see the court uh, not call for an immediate ceasefire, but only call for Israel to uh, sort of protect humanitarian measures. And I think the second thing is that the ICJ has always struggled with the enforcement of its ruling. So it often makes these of advisory opinions, but really struggles uh, to to actually impose that on the ground. I think almost whatever the ICJ says today, Israel almost certainly will ignore it. So it becomes a vocal you know, um, expression of global justice, arguably, as opposed to a court, which is, you know, a, it is binding, but it's not enforceable. But it does two things, doesn't it? It, it, it a, makes those who abide by the principles of justice being done and being seen to be done finding this a very uncomfortable ruling, no matter which direction it goes in. But also, what problems does it throw up for any other future cases, which might not apply to Israel, but might apply to other nations? I I think this is a case in many ways that's put international law back in the spotlight. I think for a long time, people thought that these courts, you know, really were fairly toothless institutions and what they ruled didn't really matter very much. I think the amount of attention that South Africa has gotten through the ICJ case has said that these courts actually are really important functions of, of diplomacy. Um, and there are moral messages that these courts are sending. And I, I think even the fact that the ICJ has accepted this case and they didn't have to do that suggests that it's serious enough and Israel needs to pay attention to it. So I think whatever comes out of the ruling today, um, it, it's a message to Israel. It's galvanising support for the Gazan population um, around the world. It, it's already had a symbolic effect, um, regardless of, of the specific ruling that comes down this afternoon. Uh, let's move on to uh, a story that's been dominating the headlines, at least for the last 24 hours, insofar as um, the world's first execution uh, by nitrogen gas has taken place. Um, dividing, it, it is always a subject which 
divides public opinion profoundly at every single level, not just the the right or wrong of, of actually executing someone, but the method in which it is carried out. Um, the second issue has been key here, hasn't it? And it has divided politics and arguably has exposed various bits of, of, of a move towards the return of something like this, hasn't it? That's right. So this is a uh, the front page story in the New York Times uh, this morning about the fact that uh, the state of Alabama executed uh, an, a man called Kenneth Smith, a 58-year-old who'd been convicted for murder uh, using nitrogen um, overnight. Um, this, I guess, has thrust the, the, the death penalty question in the US um, back into the spotlight. It's, it's also thrown into the spotlight the role of the Supreme Court. This, this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court those judges involved some dissent. Um, there were some liberal judges who, who who opposed the death penalty and gave, I think, very convincing reasons why the use of nitrogen in this case was was really egregious. But of course, the, the liberal judges are a minority. This is a court that was stacked during the Donald Trump uh, presidency. And this is exactly the kind of contentious moral case uh, that, that I think Trump was hoping would be determined in a certain direction. Um, and, and that's exactly what's happened here. The Supreme Court basically said to the state of Alabama, Alabama, you go ahead and, and use nitrogen, even though it's never been used in a public execution before. I think crucially in this New York Times uh, piece, they had a reporter um, at the scene of the execution. The promise had been that nitrogen was this very fast moving, you know, kind of humane way of killing someone. They report that it was the complete opposite. In fact, it was very slow. It was very torturous. It was an agonizing death um, to watch. So I think that's going to give fuel to those who not only oppose the death penalty generally, but specifically oppose the use of nitrogen in these public executions. Okay, let's move on to an article uh, that's coming from the ABC in Australia. Uh, Invasion Day protests. Ex- explain the context for this, please. Uh, so it's the 26th of January, so I think as an Australian uh, coming on this morning, Emma, I, I couldn't really avoid um, a- any stories of, uh, about Australia Day. So so the context here is there's been a big political battle in Australia, particularly over the last 10 years or so, about whether we should celebrate the 26th of January as the national holiday of Australia Day. Um, what's, what's it supposed to mark? It's supposed to mark the the arrival of the British fleet um, on Australian shores in 1788. So, of course, uh, this is a real, you know, punch in the face uh, to the Australian Indigenous population who clearly don't see uh, that that arrival as as cause for celebration. Um, Hence, the day is now being renamed by many Australians as Invasion Day. In in fact, if anything, it's a day that marks the beginning of the colonial period and the beginning of the subjugation of the Aboriginal people. Um, So this was a protest movement that grew out of Indigenous communities, but it's become much bigger than that. And that's what the ABC is reporting on today, that right across Australia in every major town and city, there have been protests against Australia Day and this clamour for, if anything, the, the celebratory day to be moved later in the year and the 26th of January to be used as a day of mourning and a, and a day of reflection. The backdrop here too, of course, is that several months ago, there was a referendum about an Indigenous voice in Australia and the national population voted against giving the Indigenous population a voice in the Australian Parliament. So there's a huge amount of emotion, there's a huge amount of anger about the the lack of rights for the Indigenous population, and that's flowing into the uh, the Invasion Day protest today. Why does Australia have such a big problem with this? They can't seem to resolve anything in in terms of the way that they should treat their fellow 
citizens. Australia's the real laggard, I think, of all the settler colonies when it, it comes to dealing with these racial issues. I've been back in Australia uh, twice this year, and I, w- I was really shocked by just how brutal um, the language was around the referendum. It was people talking about Indigenous people wanting to uh, to steal white people's rights. Um, there was a, a sort of a lack of justice in Indigenous people claiming to, to, to have this this voice to Parliament. Um, it, it's, it's a really divine divisive and, and really ugly debate, the likes of which I don't think we see in places like the US or Canada, other places that also have very fraught relations with their Indigenous populations. There's something very severe, very specific about the Australian experience. At least part of it, I think, is about being this kind of white island in the South Pacific, this kind of bunker mentality that that, that, that wants to protect uh, white people's rights. It's um, yeah, it's very difficult to, to have a more progressive discussion about these issues in one, Australia. One wonders what the rest of the world should say about this and whether, you know... Ad- other lessons should be learned, or otherwise a quiet word should be had. Uh, finally, briefly, we have to cover this. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, former First Minister of Scotland, she was in the thick of it with uh, COVID. She, she um, navigated Scotland through COVID, uh, seemingly totally at odds with what was happening in Westminster when, let's not forget, Boris Johnson was in charge. This is an amazing story all over the UK papers today. I think The Guardian covered this particularly well. It's in the context of the COVID inquiry. Nicola Sturgeon has had to produce the WhatsApp messages that she was sending to other members of the Scottish government and some of her senior advisers at the time. She's been very reluctant to hand over those WhatsApps. And I think yesterday we discovered why, which is she's used some fairly colourful language, um, particularly about Boris Johnson. The Guardian's headline pulls its punches and says that uh, Sturgeon called uh, Johnson a clown. They leave out the crucial uh, adjective there, which begins with the letter F. Um, <clears throat> I think fruity, I think. Yeah, fruity, I think. Is the, this is the, the British euphemism, isn't it, for this kind of language, um, Emma? But but I think it, it, it shows just the amount of anger in Scotland um, at the way that UK policymaking in COVID was playing out. Now, Scotland has a certain amount of independence when it comes to its health policy. They had very different COVID measures up north, but they felt that that was being diluted by by what was happening out of Westminster. And the beauty, I think, of, of Sturgeon's messages is it, it's just unbridled anger um, and just absolute flabbergastedness at, at, at the kind of ham-fisted policymaking that was coming from Boris Johnson's government. So the, the WhatsApps capture that beautifully. Thank you very much for saying flabbergastedness on the radio. Phil Clark, you're listening to Monocle Radio. The time is just nudging 7.30. A quick look now at the headlines. Israel is expecting an interim ruling from the International Court of Justice on South Africa's allegation that the war in Gaza amounts to genocide. Any ruling is binding but cannot be enforced. The first execution using nitrogen gas has been carried out in the US state of Alabama. Kenneth Eugene Smith lost two final appeals to the Supreme Court and one to a federal appeals court, arguing the execution was a cruel and unusual punishment. The UK government has walked away from trade talks with Canada over the imposition of tariffs that Canada is introducing on some British exports, including cars and cheese. Talks have been ongoing for the best part of two years. Both sides have expressed disappointment, but say they'll try to get talks going again if they can. And a Copper Airlines jet has become the first Boeing 737 MAX 9 to return to service after 171 aircraft were grounded following an accident involving an Alaska Airlines plane. The US Federal Aviation Administration has approved an inspection process that will allow grounded MAX 9s to return to service. Copper is a flag carrier of Panama. And those are the headlines. 
This weekend, for the first time, Finland votes in its presidential elections as the 31st member of NATO. The president leads the country's foreign and security policy and acts as commander-in-chief of the Finnish Defence Forces. So to find out what is in store in the next couple of days, I'm joined now by Charlie Salonius-Pasternak, leading researcher from the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in Helsinki. A very good morning to you, Charlie. Thank you. Good morning. So just explain the context, the background of this election, please. Well, normal elections every six years. Of course, we've had uh, the current president, Sauli Ninista, um, take the uh, role or position for for the full maximum 12. So Finland's going to get a new president no matter what. And at the moment, we really can't be certain who it is because, uh, well, it could be any any number of three, maybe even four people. And who are those three to four people who, who stand a chance of becoming president this weekend? Well, we have kind of three of them, I would say, are central right. Uh, former Foreign Minister Alexander Stubb, current Speaker of the Parliament, um, Jussi Halaho. Then we have Olli Rehn, who's a longtime minister of Centre Party. And then we have, perhaps interestingly, Pekka Havista, foreign, uh, foreign Minister, former Foreign Minister um, from the Green Party. And he looks to be the kind of leader of the left party. So the Social Democrats and the Left Alliance have their own candidates, but they're polling at five to seven percent. So we may have uh, people from um, politically on the left coalescing around the Green Party uh, candidate. So we're in the situation now, as I mentioned a moment ago, that Finland does this for the first time as a member of NATO. How much is security a pressing issue in this? Well, it is a core issue in in some ways, simply because there's a focus on what is it that the president does versus the government of Finland. Um, so, of course, security, defense, uh, relations with um, other powers. The government has kind of a role, uh, leading role in EU matters. Uh, the president would be the one that would uphold relations with the United States, Russia, Japan, China, etc. Um, so it's been a, in a central debate one of the interesting features which says more about Finland than the candidate as such is that there's a great amount of consensus, in fact. Charlie, we will uh, try and get yes, back to you in a moment. Yes, it I seemed, can hear you. Oh, I'm delighted I, to say, do do yeah. carry on. Um, so, sorry, I'm not sure where, where it cut off, but there's a great amount of consensus between the candidates, which is very typical in Finland. Um, you know, everyone thinks Finland um, should do its best in NATO, ensure that it's national defense is in good shape, um, et cetera. So it's um, it's been sometimes hard to see a difference even from the left all the way to the right on the core foreign policy security issues. What is the, the Finnish general approach to, to, to security now? And I was talking to a Finnish friend a few weeks ago and he was saying that for his entire life he has been against the idea of, of, of NATO. It is something that, that, that Finns oppose in principle. But when suddenly when push comes to shove and you have your neighbour, Russia, invading Ukraine, suddenly it becomes an incredibly pragmatic and almost argument-free decision. Um. Yeah, there's there's a throughout the Cold War, it was very clear what the only potential risk. I mean, Finland fought against the Soviet Union a few wars during World War Two, um, what the potential risk was. But the political choice was simply not to talk about it, try to cultivate good relations with Russia. Now, I think for most people, it simply became obvious that no matter what Finland does by itself, if 
Russia is willing to invade Ukraine, much larger and populous country, then Finland clearly needed to ally itself, but doing so not expecting others only to come to its defense. The thinking has shifted from we alone to we are responsible for this, but hopefully with our allies according to NATO's defense plans. And what kind of role or voice do you think the the new president of Finland will add to the NATO meetings that, that they'll be joining and speaking at? Well, this will be interesting. This is where we may see some differences, let's say, between the, if we get a more politically right or central left um, in terms of how we'll discuss things that aren't defense, defense related, but I'm talking about hybrid tools, for instance, uh, Finland's border to the east, where we keep on seeing people being um, weaponized, pushed over from Russia to Finland. So I suspect the candidates could speak about issues like that slightly differently because it's tied to migration, immigration questions. And here, as you might imagine, the candidates do have some differences, Um, though, generally speaking, everyone thinks the border should be shut down and remain shut down. Um, but uh, as as a whole, I mean, it'll be about support for Ukraine and that every NATO member should carry their weight, spend at least 2%, ensure they have real military capabilities to deliver, whether or not it's uh, Greece or France or the UK or or in uh, hopefully in a few weeks, Sweden. Charlie Salonius-Pasternak, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. And if you'd like to hear more from Alexander Stubb, who is a former Finnish Prime Minister and one of the presidential candidates standing this weekend, head to episode 166 of The Big Interview. Just go to monocle.com for more. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. in Zurich, 2.37am in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, which means it's time to hear Andrew Muller's take on what we've learned this week. We learned this week that the next president of the United States will not be this guy. If there was anything I could do to produce a favourable outcome, more campaign stops, more interviews, I would do it. But I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources, we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. We learned that Florida governor and man not normally sympathetic to people terminating something because it isn't viable or they can't afford it, Ron DeSantis, had thrown in the towel. After an unimpressive showing in the caucuses of Iowa, where his hopes of winning over voters who wanted essentially a less obviously unhinged and inept Donald Trump foundered, when it became clear that said voters preferred essentially a more obviously unhinged and inept Ron DeSantis, i.e. this guy, who is now free to focus on his sole remaining opponent, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, upon whose sartorial deportment Trump has, we learned opinions. I watched her in a fancy dress that probably wasn't so fancy come up. I said, what's she doing? We won. And she did the same thing last week. Sniffing an awful lot there. Still very, very cold in New Hampshire this time of year. 
We did also learn of a possible early bid for the vice president spot on a Trump ticket, as Lauren Witzke, who actually was the Republican nominee for a Senate seat in Delaware in the 2020 election, expressed some views. I believe that um, 9-11 was a human sacrifice on a mass scale. I think that, you know, they have been doing this work with these demons, and but the devil demands a sacrifice. The party of Lincoln, folks. Returning to Governor DeSantis for what we must fervently hope is the last time we learned that he had been drawing consolation and perhaps inspiration from the experience of a great leader of yesteryear who had returned from the wilderness to lead his nation at a moment of peril. Winston Churchill once remarked that success is not final, failure is not fatal, it is the courage to continue that counts. Except, we learned, because we did what DeSantis and or his speechwriter did not do and bothered to check, there is simply no record of Winston Churchill ever having made any such utterance. Indeed, we learned from the sleuthing of the online pedant legions, who to be clear are very much our people, the line appears actually attributable to a 1938 magazine advertisement for Budweiser, a company which, rather wondrously, DeSantis has repeatedly targeted amid the fevered campaign against entirely imaginary enemies which he is pleased to call his War on Woke, and to which he is now free to return. Oh no. But we learned that at least one holder of elected office had made an even more egregious misjudgment than assuming that what Donald Trump voters wanted was relative sanity and competence. We learned that Filipino President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. had inflamed the dander of his fellow citizens by summoning the presidential helicopter to take him to the Manila concert of boring British rock band Coldplay, much beloved by cardigan-clad urbanites who cannot quite cope with the crazy wild-eyed trousers-on-fire hell-raising of The National. We learned that while this means of evading Manila's legendarily dreadful traffic had unimpressed the people sitting in it, the traffic itself had impressed Coldplay to the extent that they wrote a song about it. If you want to get back home in time for your bath, well, I'd allow yourself about a year and a half. Well, we can wait to play Manila again. Annoyingly, not bad. But sticking with the subject of modern popular song, we learned that there will never be a New Zealand prince. We did not mean to be clear that we learned that no citizen of New Zealand may ever aspire to regard as a talented musician. We learned that no modern New Zealand equivalent of the Nelson family of Minneapolis circa the late 1950s could call their child Prince because the name is verboten in New Zealand. We learned this from the annual release of Names Knocked Back by New Zealand's Registrar-General, of which Prince was the most popular. We learned that New Zealand maintained strictures against encumbering children with names resembling royal or religious or military rank, so also kiboshed were Bishop, King, Royal, Sovereign, Major, Captain, Judge, Pope and Messiah, 
though we, for one humorous news review, commend the ambition and very much hope that Messiah's putative surname would have been Smith or Jones or something similarly quotidian, as will now be tried on for size by Monocle's New Zealand desk chief, David Stevens, if that is still his name. Messiah Stevens. Messiah Stevens. Yeah, I quite like that. All right, who do I talk to about getting some business cards made? Thanks, Messiah. And slash but. We learned that none of the above matters anyway, as we're all doomed. Last year, we expressed amplified concern by moving the clock to 90 seconds to midnight, the closest to global catastrophe it has ever been. The risks of last year continue with unabated ferocity and continue to shape this year. Today, we once again set the doomsday clock to express a continuing and unprecedented level of risk. It is 90 seconds to midnight. Yeah, Happy New Year to you guys again. We learned that, yes, the attention-seeking poindexters at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists had issued their annual assessment of precisely how doomed we all are, from which we learned that we're exactly as doomed as we were this time last year, and yet here we all still apparently are. Explain that, nerds. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Mullet. Well, if that didn't scare you, I don't know what will. That was The Globalist. Well, this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's talk fashion now with Dana Thomas, author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. I'm delighted to say she joins me on the line from Paris. A very good morning to you, Dana. How is Paris looking this morning? Good morning. Well, it's grey and a little and a little misty and, and damp, but that doesn't, you know, that's not how fashion is looking right now. Couture was very bright and shiny and colourful and up this week. And uh, and LVMH's numbers have been very up, and so they're happy over there too. This Luxury was, is booming. This was Haute Couture Week in Paris, and there was a zip about the place. Certainly, C- considering the fact that Haute Couture is is that moment when fantasy really comes to town, isn't it? It is. These are the clothes that are you know started at twenty thousand dollars for a or euros for a suit, like a day suit, and go and for evening gowns start at a hundred thousand and go up to you know up to a million if you're if you really want to go for it. They're made to measure. They're one of a kind. They're what the movie stars wear on the red carpet a lot of the time, uh, especially at the Oscars. There were a lot of stars in town shopping. There was Zendaya. There was Gwyneth Paltrow, who we you know we haven't seen around in a while, but loves her couture too and um and they were clearly shopping and there were things for them to wear and it's all i mean you you mentioned there the idea of you know who was swanning around town that the whole idea of 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 relationships now is is something which is just the absolute driving force of a brand in terms of sort of forging its future heritage but also just so happens to be a few weeks before oscar season so if you were 
intending to appear on a red carpet anytime soon. This was your week, wasn't it? This was your week. And it's a nice time to come because you, well, first you get paid, you get flown in. It's what we call red carpet revenue, where, you know, your agent works it all out. You're at the Ritz, you've flown first class or even if if you've got the real pool private, you go you have a you go to dinners, you go to parties. You know you're at Caviar Caspia. <laughs> you have a car and driver to take you all the shows. You have fittings afterwards with with champagne, and it's a it's a pretty posh life. You know you're living like a queen or a princess. So did what we see on the red car on the on the catwalks this week actually live live up to the fantasies that people are wishing to realise on the red carpet this year? Yes and no. It was a it was a funny mix. You know, Chanel, um, since Karl Lagerfeld has been run by Virginie Viard, and she sent out a, a collection that was based in rooted in dance and had these sort of filmy tulle overskirts on everything that look a little weird, but if you're on a red carpet at the Oscars, you might be able to pull off. Dior was very heavy and and long. There was like beige. Who wants to wear sort of khaki a khaki colored gown? I don't know. But then there was a really beautiful chartreuse silk silk number that I'm sure we're going to see. That was interestingly, I thought, an homage to the most famous dress of the 90s out of Dior, which was on Nicole Kidman, that John Galliano designed, this sort of chartreuse embroidered gown. It was very similar to that, the same kind of hue. And then, you know, over at Chaparelli, it was big shoulders and some and a bit sci-fi looking, which was kind of special and, and, and strange. Valentino... Of, on the other hand, was as glamour as you can get. Long slits showing lots of leg, gorgeous colors. He's the best colorist in the, in the business, you know, bright emerald and ruby red and sapphire, magnificent fabrics and volume, but that made you look really sexy. So I think we'll see some, some Valentino on the red carpet for the Oscars. It's interesting that each house has gone so strongly in a different direction. I mean, that the weightlessness of the Chanel Haute Couture show suggested that actually this was very much a very particular kind of woman that was being dressed here, and as, as was Valentino. Yes, they know who their clients are now. And there there are clients, as I wrote on my Substack page this week, uh, the style files. They uh, they have doubled the number of couture clients in the last few years. It's now up to 40,000 40, 40, 40, regular clients coming to Paris to shop or, more importantly, bringing the ateliers to their homes. These people are richer than rich. We're, you know, in our divisive e- economy, our our divided wealth, there is a an uber wealth of high net worth individuals who are buying couture and they are wearing their couture and they go shopping. So the, so the couture shows are not na- about making noise and hype and our marketing exercises and kind of costumey getups like they used to be. They're actually making clothes for people to wear. They know their clients and they want to sell to them. Let's move to LVMH. Um, there has been talk, hasn't there, in the last 12 months that what you've just said, apart about the, 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 the uber haute couture crowd to one side, but, but luxury is something that people are looking at, it is something that people are looking at very, very closely this year in terms of where the political journeys will travel, the, the economic journeys will travel, and, and luxury doesn't have a clear path, does it? It doesn't, but it seems to be coming around. Post-COVID, it's kind of been a tricky, tricky thing. You know, for much of the 1990s and the early 2000s, as I wrote in Deluxe, it was luxury democratized. It was going, it was aiming towards the middle market consumer. 
And that worked really well until the middle market consumer didn't have too much money to spend on luxury. And it, you know, it's a volatile market. So they've shifted back to the ultra rich and high net worth consumer and, and it's expanded into things like hospitality and they're, they're making their numbers. It, you know, and LVMH announced yesterday, yesterday that, um, that they had a 10% jump in their fourth quarter organic sales. And everybody was saying that luxury was stalling, that growth was going to drop down to like 3%, which is still, you know, not bad, but, you know, it's still growing, but it wasn't losing. But they said, no, 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 no. And the growth was in Asia. It was up 15%. Japan was up 20%. And the U.S. was up 8%, which is, a, which is the market everyone said was the softest around. So it looked much better than it, than analysts had predicted. But more than that, I'm I'm going to say by looking at the couture shows, it's because they have pivoted to this, this uh, very strongly to the high net worth individual, which is growing rapidly in places like India and in Asia and in the Middle East. There's also the fact that leather goods will always do very, very well, no matter what the climate is. Absolutely. But it's interesting that the, the hospitality part's very interesting because, for example, Dior now has an apartment that they charge 25,000 euros a night for in the store and you can come and stay there and go shopping 24-7 whenever you want. You can just step out of the apartment. You have a key to the store and you can go shopping. They're about to build, they're about to open a Louis Vuitton hotel on the Champs-Élysées right next door to the Louis Vuitton store. They're there's talk in my neighborhood that they're going to turn the old Conrad shop into a Louis Vuitton hotel right across the street from the Bon Marché department store. So there's this real synergy that's going on that's really, they're thinking in a macro way that's very interesting. And I think it's going to do them right. Dana Thomas, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. For many, it's never really gone away. But last year, there was a drop in global shipments of champagne. So, bar a bit of hand-wringing, what will happen in 2024? Well, I'm joined now by the author of an article on the subject, Patrick Schmidt, a master of wine and the editor-in-chief of the drinks business. Uh, A very good morning to you, Patrick. Good to have you on Monocle Radio. Good morning. Very nice to be here. Uh, Now, just explain to us in numbers, how big was this drop? Uh, So, it was almost 30 million bottles. Uh, so it was a significant decline for champagne in a single year. Um, but uh, just to say that was, a, that was a volume drop in shipments. So that's not actually reflecting entirely sales. It's the amount of champagne that leaves champagne. Um, but in value terms, the region only dropped around, the estimates are, uh, 1.5%. So it's still almost at a record in terms of turnover. So there's a huge amount still coming out of uh, coming out of champagne and, and moving away. Because when you said 30 million bottles, I wasn't entirely sure how, how compared to the, the overall um, transportation of, of, of champagne this is. So when you say there's a, there's a boom at the moment, when people do talk about a, a drop in global shipments of champagne, should we be genuinely wringing our hands about this? 
<laughs> uh, some of the champagne world may not see a slight, well, quite a, quite a big decline in last year. They may not see it as such a bad thing. I mean, what we had was we had a kind of what people are calling a post-COVID euphoria. Uh, so when COVID, when the pandemic started spreading, particularly across Western Europe and the US in early 2020, understandably, people didn't want to buy champagne. There was nothing to celebrate. They were locked in their homes and sales literally fell off a cliff. So we went from about 300 million bottles that were being sold, shipped worldwide in 2019 to below 250 million in 2020. So there was this big, big decline. And then it picked up. Um, 2021, we saw a lot of growth. The markets bounced back really quite suddenly and, and more than the Champenois expected. And we were shipping, the region was shipping 320 million bottles. And they thought, wow, this is amazing. Is it going to continue? 2022, all the markets were, were opened up and Champagne is really consumed globally. And we had yet more growth on top of the growth in 21. And Champagne reached an almost a record level where it got to 326 million bottles. And if you speak to the producers there in 2022, they're all looking at this growth and thinking, when's it going to end? This can't continue. And also, they didn't have the supply for it to continue because Champagne is a fixed area. They can only make so much. So they were sort of sitting on their seats. When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And 2023, last year, is when it happened. But actually, what happened in the first six months of 2023, things looked all right. People were still ordering champagne. And the champagne was saying, well, there's a bit of a decline, but it's not too bad. Uh, it's going to be a soft landing. And then the second half of the year, things really fell away quickly. And I think there are a lot of number of reasons for that. One is cost of living. Price increases have been really large on champagne, in line with other goods, but but particularly with champagne because it's on top of already a high base price. Uh, and then consumer confidence. And I think November was a really bad month for shipments of champagne. And I think people aren't saying enough about it, but it could be connected with the Israel crisis. Um, and people just didn't feel like, like clinking glasses at the end of the year. So if we are not drinking champagne in the quantities that we used to for the reasons that you just described, are we just drinking less in a less luxurious manner or are we switching to other products and other drinks instead that, that, that keep the spirit up but without those, that price tag that you've just described? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really, I mean, the people are generally drinking a bit less uh, they are being very careful about what they buy. And let's face it, you know, expensive booze and champagne is not a necessity. Uh, so, yeah, I think they are. I mean, you know, one of the contenders to champagne, apart from not drinking at all, is things like fine rosé, celebrity back rosé, you know, in cool, sexy packages, beautiful bottles, pale pink and pretty is doing very well. Uh, other sparkling wines are doing well, like premium carver is doing well, I'm seeing in the supermarkets. Um, Cremants from France and English Sparkling. In fact, English Sparkling had a really good year in 2022, partly because there was a little bit of a shortage of champagne and prices went up a lot and there wasn't enough on the shelves and people switched to other fine sparkling wines of which our homegrown product is very much one. Finally, we um, talk, we're talking yeah. about the, the idea of people drinking less. That it, I mean, are people generally getting a bit more worried that there's a younger generation who are deciding not to drink full stop? Yeah, it is. It's a real issue. Um, what I would say is that there is there is a trend for moderation across all age groups, uh, but particularly the younger generation. 
and what are they doing in place? I mean, they may be doing other things, vaping, uh, pot smoking. It's not as if they're 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 so worthy um, that they're not they're not looking for mind altering substances of some sort, but they are definitely drinking less. Um, it's not as cool, perhaps, uh, to get drunk, um, but trends show that maybe people are drinking less over the course of the month, but still drinking large amounts in, in single sessions. But what we do see in the trade is that while the overall trend is towards moderation, uh, per capita consumption is going down, the young are drinking less, those people who are interested in wine are really engaged, as they say, so they tend to become quite geeky about it. And if you look at the top end of the trade, the fine wine sector, things like back to champagne, grower champagnes, niche champagnes, expensive products, uh, they are being bought by a younger generation who are really interested in Patrick, things that are fine. I'm afraid we've um, run out of time, but yeah. thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. That is all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to the producers, Emma Sell, Laura Kramer and Christy O'Grady, researcher Naomi Ekwe and our studio manager, Tamsin Howard, with editing assistance from Jack Dewars. The Globalist is back at the same time on Monday. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. <laughs>